Lofting it down near sideline. Jeffries at the five. He's in. Touchdown. Haywood Jeffries, his second touchdown of the game. The fourth touchdown pass for Warren Moon. And it's a 27-3 ball game. That's the voice of former Oilers broadcaster Tom Franklin from a certain game back in 1992 against the Bills. Yeah, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and forget what happened after that point in the game. But Tom has quite a few amazing stories over the course of his career. I'm taking a little R&R, but thought I'd cue up a portion of one of my favorite interviews with Tom about his career. This happened to be the first time we had him on Houston Sports Talk. Now, I know some of you haven't listened to us since the beginning, so... Hopefully, this will be all new material for you guys. If you're not familiar with Tom, he's been a fixture on the air in Houston sports for over four decades. Today, you'll mostly hear him call high school and college games, but he spent 20 years at 740 KTRH in the 80s and 90s. They were the sports talk powerhouse back in those days. He hosted several sports talk shows, worked pre- and post-game shows for the Oilers, Rockets, and Astros. And as we mentioned, called the Oilers games in the early 90s. He's been the football and basketball voice of both the Houston Cougars and the Rice Owls, a Cougar alum. So he has some loyalty to them. We'll get into that in the interview. And on a personal note, his afternoon show with Jerry Truppiano was the very first sports talk show I listened to as a kid. And I'm sure had a huge impact on my career. I started off by asking him how sports talk has changed since his show back in the 80s oh it, it, it's definitely changed because uh you know i mean shoot we you know we just used to have a researcher back in the office uh, you know when someone would ask a question and their main job was you know we had everybody's media guide so that's where we got most of the answers from but he would also telephone whatever team was involved in the question to try and find the answer and and shoot that to us so we could answer questions for people Today, well, nobody has to call a sports talk show to ask a question. All they have to do is go to their computer, and they can find out for themselves. And that changes the dynamic because it takes the personality out of sports talk, if you will, because you don't have that give and take with the callers anymore because the callers think they know everything where you were kind of the authority figure when you were a sports talk host. So it's a much different lay of the land, and it seems as though that Sports is just part of sports talk. You have to do a whole bunch of other things as well. Yeah, it's kind of guy talk radio. When you say it gets a little bit into that, I'm a, I'm just a sports guy, so I like that part of the of the aspect. Uh, yeah, I am with you, Robert. I much prefer the ones who stick closer to sports. I don't mind other stuff being thrown in, but sometimes I think I get too much of the other stuff and hardly any sports, and that kind of is frustrating for me. On a weekly basis, you and Jerry were lucky enough to have a real sports talk legend. And in a way, this guy was really an NFL legend, Joel Bushbaum. Joel, really the original NFL draft guru, a great all-time character, a huge reason why the draft is as big as it is today. Tell me if I have the story right. Jerry had worked with Joel at KMOX Radio in St. Louis and then hired Joel when he came to KTRH. Did I get that right? You you have the premise right. Yes, Joel was 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 a guest for the folks at KMOX where Jerry first started before he came to Houston, and because of that association, he was able to develop him here into Houston. But uh, Joel was based in Brooklyn, New York. He was right in the heart of Flatbush, and uh, that's where he came to us from every week when we talked to him. And uh, you could tell it by the way he talked. But there was nobody, absolutely nobody, who knew more about football than than Joel did. He had. His, his apartment was a bed, 
a television and uh, huge bookcases that had reams and reams of media guides and reams of reams of tape that teams would send to him so he could evaluate the, the players and get his knowledge. And for the longest time, almost to the very end, Joel would submit his columns for Pro Football Weekly in longhand. He did not own a computer. He did it all from the top of his head. When you asked the question, it came right from his brain, and he wrote his columns in longhand, and finally Pro Football Weekly bought him a computer so he could type his <laughs> columns and email them to them. Otherwise, they were written in long, longhand and shipped overnight by FedEx so they could appear in, 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 print, in, the, in, the, print, in the weekly print uh, edition of Pro Football Weekly. So, so that's, but he was, uh, my, you could not stump him, whether it was a big school or a small Division II school, if somebody had a prospect, Joel knew about it. He knew his height. He knew his weight. He knew his 40 time. And he knew a bunch of other things about the guy, too, and whether or not he could make it in the National Football League. And uh, of all the years that I've worked in radio, I don't know that there's been a bigger character or a bigger memory pusher than Joel Bushbaum, because once you heard the guy, you could not forget him. And you compare him today to all these other guys, and there are some very good guys out there, Mike Mayock and, and Mel Kuyper and, and the whole lot of them. There are a lot of guys who study it, but I dare say that nobody ever comes close to what Joel knew about football personnel. And just so people know, Joel was so well-respected that Bill Belichick would call him before the draft and go over his draft board and then make changes on what Joel had to say. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Joel was, uh, looks like Tarzan plays like Jane. Do you have any particular favorite quotes or callers or, or just kind of moments with doing the show with him? For one of the years, Joel would do the opposing team's preview for us in the or the pregame show that I hosted. And he would run down, you know, every starter on the offense, every starter on the defense. And one, I won't mention the, the player or the team, but he was an outside linebacker is all I was tell, tell all I would tell you. And he said he six three, two forty five, runs four five, thinks five two. <laughs> <laughs> and you knew exactly what he was. Great athlete, but did not have football intelligence. And uh, the other one that, that that pops to mind besides the play plays like Tar uh, looks like Tarzan plays like Jane is uh, Reggie Collier was uh, a highly touted college quarterback and went to the USFL out of college the Dallas Cowboys held their rights to Collier and when the USFL folded Collier went over and was a third string quarterback behind Danny White and I forget who White's backup was but it was late in the season the Cowboys were not doing very well and somebody called in and asked what were the odds of Collier getting some playing time since the Cowboys had no playoff aspirations and Joel's response was, is, Tom Landry won't play him because the last films that Reggie saw was Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously meant that Reggie didn't do any off-the-field work to get ready for a game, so Landry wasn't about to put him in a ball game. So those are the two most memorable ones that come out for me. Hey, Tom, uh, thanks for joining us. I wanted to uh, talk about the Houston Oilers because you were the play-by-play -play voice for them from uh, 1990 to 93. And, you know, longtime Houstonians will often cite that Houston Oilers era with Warren Moon as one of the most talented ever, but they were never able to get it done. They often had those agonizing playoff losses, most notably at Buffalo. Uh, since you saw them up close, close and personal, why do you think those Oilers teams could never get over the hump? You know, I, I, I think if, if I had to boil it down, 
I think it was the run and shoot that ultimately was their undoing. And it somewhat ties into the Buddy Ryan, Kelvin Gilbright fight on the sidelines uh, in the final game of the 1993 season is that I think that when the Oilers got a lead, their running game was not proficient enough to take time off the clock. When you just need to control the football, you have enough points, you just need to make it impossible for the other team to come back against you. And despite the fact that you had good running backs, you had Mike Rozier at the start, you had Alan Pinkett, you had Lorenzo White, you had Gary Brown, guys who were talented enough because the game was so predicated on pass blocking, as good as those offensive linemen like Munchak and Matthews and Steinkuhler and all the rest were, they never got enough work to run block to when it, the chips were really down, they could control the ball and take the air out of it so the other team couldn't score. And if I had a point of any one thing, that was it. And it showed up in the Buffalo game. Because even though they had the big league and Buffalo was coming back, the Oilers could not run the ball. They tried, but they couldn't run the ball successfully and sustain drives to keep the Bills on the sidelines. The defense kept going back out there and eventually gets worn down in the ball game. And if I were to say anything, that was the one flaw of the run and shoot is that it did not have a potent enough running attack and a respected enough running attack that would keep them on the field enough that would take ball games to the wire. And you often saw them come up short at the end. Well, a couple of weeks ago, the NFL Network's Football Live Series did that fantastic hour on the 93 Oilers. I don't think we would have believed it if we hadn't seen it here in Houston. Tom, you were the voice of the Oilers that year. We heard your calls and your thoughts throughout the documentary. What did you think of the show? Uh, Did they get most of it right? I think they got most of it right. I think they did a pretty good job. Um, You know, I I think the... They did a couple of things that, 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 that bothered me a little bit. Is, is Jack Party was a lot stronger man and a lot stronger head coach than he was portrayed. And Mike Holovac was a much, much stronger general manager and knew more about football than almost anybody else I knew besides Joel Bushbaum. And the one little clip that they, they showed of Mike certainly did not paint him in a very good life. Those were two outstanding men, two great football minds, and, and I think they got – portrayed as chumps and I think that was wrong but I think the rest of it was very very well done did they miss anything important in it is there anything that you thought oh they didn't talk about this or that and that was a pretty crazy part of the equation too I'm sure they probably left something out but there was so much in there I don't know that they had enough time to squeeze it all into an hour I mean how can you start from blowing a 32 point lead against Buffalo on January the 3rd and get all the way to January the the 16th of the of the following year, just over 370 days, with so many different things happening. You know, you bring you, you fire your defensive coaching staff, bring in a guy like Buddy Ryan who upsets the apple cart and goes against everything else that has been created there to try and bring in this attacking style defense. You get off to the crummy start at one and five. You bench Warren or one and four rather. You bench Warren Moon. You have Babygate come up, which I think turns out to be a rallying point for the team because I think they just got fed up with everything. That happened to be the game to where everything turned from that particular point in time. Moon was benched. Cody Carlson starts. He gets the injury. Moon comes back on, becomes the hero with the win over the Patriots. And, you know, the one thing I think they forgot about and and maybe didn't portray well enough about Babygate was is that that game we're flying the, the charter to New England for the ball game. 
and they have to put us down in Philadelphia for two hours on the tarmac because of the fog that's in the New England area. And, you know, you saw the thing, well, David should be here, David should be here. Well, guess what? Even if David tried, and I think he really did try to get there after the baby was born, to get up there on Sunday, he couldn't get there because when we got to the stadium in Foxborough that time, that, that year, we got there about 10.30 for the kickoff, which was 1 o'clock Eastern time, and we could not see the field because the fog was still there. And the fog did not lift until about 20 minutes before kickoff because I was really wondering, I'm hoping they got a, t- a television monitor here in this booth because that may be the only way I can see the field and tell people via radio what's going on in this ball game because I've got no clue where the field is up in the press box. So even if David, you know, guys gave David a bad rap on that, but I think he really made every effort to get there. Weather just prevented him from getting there. There was no way he was going to get there. Hey, Tom, how palpable was that tension between uh, Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride? Because that's what a big focus of the documentary was about, about the offense and defense really hating one another on field. The camaraderie was in the locker room, Warren Moon explained afterwards, and Sean Jones on that, that post-special. But just to you, I mean, how, how much of that uh, was, was authentic in the documentary? It was very authentic. The practice sessions were, were very, very heated. The guys, when they got away from the coaches to themselves, were a lot better and a lot closer and a lot tighter. And as I started to mention, I think Baby Gate really became a rallying point because even though David was like the first or one of the first prime athletes to miss a game, if you will, for the birth of a child, because as you kept seeing from you know people like offensive line coach Bob Young, this is war. You don't miss. You know you don't leave in the middle of war for the birth of a child, you, you, you stay in the war and all that sort of stuff because David was the first to kind of set the trend that we now see as commonplace today. Uh, I think that so much had gone on, and I really think that, you know, when it was announced before the game that, that David was going to be uh, fined by Bud Adams for, for missing the ball game and having a paycheck taken away, I think the guy said, oh, the heck with all this sort of stuff. Let's just go out there and play football. And I think that really led to the 11-game winning streak that, that propelled them to the 12-4 and four record and got them to a first-round bye in the playoffs. I, I think Babygate was a turning point and was a rallying cry within the locker room. Granted, when the two coaches got after each other and you know the, the meeting rooms are closed and you can hear each other talk back and forth, that was it. But when the guys were alone, I think the guys were a whole lot tighter than it was. may have been portrayed in that particular uh, you know episode by NFL Films. Well, the guy that you were calling the Oilers game with at that time was Bum Phillips. That was your partner in the booth. And just what was it like to not only work with Bum, but just be around him on a regular basis? It was the Pied Piper. I mean, every city we went to, even though we were the visiting team, everybody was waiting at the hotel, waiting to see Bum get off the bus after we you know, left the airport and got to the hotel. Bum was the crowd favorite everywhere we went. And people were standing in line to shake his hand, to say hello, to have him sign something. And he, he, was, he was absolutely the Pied Piper. There, there's no better way for me to describe it. And uh, our biggest chore back in those days was first to get Bum to say a lot of the things that he would say in commercial breaks on the air. He would he would tell, he would dissect things during the commercial breaks. This is going to, and we'd look at him, bum. You need to say this when we're on the air with the people. Just don't tell us here in the booth. Tell everybody what you're seeing out here. That's why we've got you here. We finally converted that, and then we. It was my goal. There was a three. We had a three-man crew at that time. 
the first two years, John O'Reilly was the third man, and the second two years, Russ Small was the third man in the booth. But uh, John and I, when we first started that, it's an Oilers broadcast. They're coming back to KTRH after a five-year stint on on, uh, on a different radio station. And with Bum being the attraction, we looked at each other, and there's, you know, there's no social media like there is today. And our goal was to have one or two what we called bumisms per ball game. So when people went to work on Monday and got together to talk about the ball game, people would say, did you hear what Bum said about? That was my whole goal for every broadcast. I knew they weren't listening for me. They're listening for Bum, and I wanted to make sure that there was one or two memorable moments in a broadcast where Bum would say something that would have people talking the very next day. And, uh, but to learn so much football from him, sitting next to him, sitting with him on the planes and discussing things, it was uh, you know, like being next to an encyclopedia because the man was a football genius, not only from an X's and O's standpoint, but how to handle people and how to handle his players. And there's no doubt as to why those Love Your Blue teams back in the late 70s were as successful as they were. It was because of that man walking the sideline and being the leader. Not only did we lose Bum this past year, you mentioned Jack Pardee. We lost him. I know you personally have a unique connection with Coach Pardee because not only did you call his games with the Oilers, but you also work with his son, uh, Ted, on the Cougar broadcast. Uh, what, what comes to mind first when you, when you hear Jack Pardee's name? What, what do you think of it when you think of Jack? One of the most decent human beings you will ever meet and that I ever had the privilege of meeting. Um, you know, small-town guy, very unassuming, but very authoritative, and far more authoritative, as, as we talked about a little bit earlier, than you may have seen uh, portrayed in, in the NFL Films feature uh, on the 1993 season. And, you know, he took a lot of flack. You know, you recall, you know, why, why doesn't Jack wear a headset? And why doesn't he know what's going on? Believe me, Jack knew every single stitch of what was going on in a ball game. And to give you an example, and it doesn't come from the Oiler days, it came from from David Klingler, who was my partner on U of H broadcast before Ted came in, in, involved. And Jack was the head coach of the Houston Cougars in 1989, the year Andre Ware won the Heisman Trophy. But it was also when SMU was first getting back into football after getting the death penalty back in the 80s. And there was a huge discrepancy in talent, as you may imagine, and the game wound up, I believe, it was played in Dallas, and it was I think the final score was 95-21. to 21. And one of the things that his offensive coordinator, John Jenkins, wanted to do, he wanted that 100-point game. And Andre had long left the game in like the third quarter, and David Klingler was the quarterback for most of the second half, and they're just going up and down the field against SMU. And John Jenkins was smart enough to stay away from Jack Party because Jack Party and then SMU coach Forrest Gregg were longtime friends from their NFL playing days. And there's no way that Jack was trying to embarrass or show up Forrest Gregg. But the score kept getting higher and higher and higher. And John Jenkins kept trying to stay away from Jack Party. And Klingler told me that there was one point they're talking about what players are going to run. He wants this next drive to score so they can get to 100 points. And just from out of nowhere, from behind the two of them on their conversation, came this very strong voice saying, if you throw the football again, you're fired. So that should tell you that Jack was always aware of what was going on, and that was very much true of his oily days, whether he wore a headset or not. The man knew what was going on. The man knew football. 
The man knew how to coach football. The man knew how to treat his players. And he was one of the best guys I ever got a chance to meet and uh, to work with. And I've been very blessed because uh, those four years I had with the Oilers, after that I went back to Rice for eight years. And Ken Hatfield had just started his run with the Owls at that time. And those two guys couldn't be two better gentlemen to work for to represent your franchise or your institution, as the case may be, in whatever they're doing. And, and I'm very blessed to have worked with guys like that. And it seems like it would take a lot of guts for an old-school guy like Jack to embrace the run-and-shoot and, and Mouse Davis with the Gamblers, and then he took it to U of H and the Oilers. And really, I don't know about you, I, I feel like he changed football. I mean, it's a totally different game today because of what happened with the run-and-shoot because I think that pretty much led to the spread offenses. No, I don't think there's any question about that, Robert. I think you're exactly right on that. Uh, it, it was it was definitely revolutionary because, and so diametric from the game that Jack was a part of as a player. Because back then you still ran the football on first down, ran the football on second down, you threw it on third down, and hoped you converted to keep the chains moving. That's how the game was back in the '60s and '70s, and that's how it was played. And and to come up with this kind of wide open style and four wide receivers, and like I said. It took so many people by surprise, and it was a, such a finely crafted passing machine. I just wish they would have had a better running component because there's no question they had the athletes on both sides of the football to be the very best and to wear a Super Bowl ring on their fingers, and it's a shame that they never got the chance to do that. Well, Coach Guy V. Lewis finally made the Basketball Hall of Fame last September. Uh, many of us wondered if he'd live long enough to see the day and it was so great to see it. Guy V get his long overdue honor. What's it been like just to get to know him over these last few years? It's been amazing to know that the flag bearers of your athletic programs are still so involved and still care so much than the Lewis family and the Yeoman family do for the University of Houston. To get to spend as much time as I have, again, around institutions like Bill Yeoman and Guy V. Lewis have just been priceless. And both Again, uh, it goes back to great people, sound foundations, know exactly what they're doing within their sport, but how to treat people. And it, it's a common thread for me. I've been a very, very blessed guy to work with people like this and, and not, you know, there are many idiots in the world of sports. Unfortunately, I haven't had to come across too many, if any of them. And I get quality people like this. And uh, the Lewis family, when, uh, the first few years when we were doing football at Robertson Stadium, we were up on the top of the press box with everybody else, and they moved us down. Oh, shoot, I can't. About three or four years into my run, they moved us down on the main press level, but we were at the very far right end. So we were at, we're at about the 15-yard line, which isn't the greatest vantage point, but at least we can see the entire field. We're upstairs on the roof. If you try to sit down, you can't see from the near sideline out, out to the near hash mark. You lose a third of the field just sitting down. So you've got to stand up and lean over to see everything that happens on the new side in the old Robertson Stadium's press box was concerned. It wasn't very good. But at the very end, the, uh, the suite that was next to ours, our broadcast position, was the Lewis's. So Coach Lewis and his wife Dina and his daughter Sherry were there each and every football game. So not only did I get to know them from a basketball standpoint, where they had their box at the end court in Hoffheim's Pavilion, but they were at every football game as well. And they're, the Yeoman family and the Lewis family are no bigger supporters that you'll ever find. And to compile the records that both Coach Yeoman did and Coach Lewis did with the, this university will never be equaled anywhere else to have two guys there at the same time doing the things that they did in the two major sports. 
Lots of fantastic stories from one of our regulars, friend of the show, Tom Franklin. Hope you guys enjoyed us. We'll get a little something out of the old HST vault. If you want more Oilers stories, be sure to download our Houston Oilers classic podcast. Still up in our archives. You can find our interviews with Dan Pastorini, Elvin Bethay, Robert Brazil, William Fuller, Spencer Tillman, and John McClain. How about that for a jam-packed podcast? And if you want more Guy V. Lewis and Houston Cougars, look for the Reed Geddes podcast available in our archives. If this is the first time you've listened to us, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or download our free Houston Sports Talk Android app available in the Google Play Store. And if you like what we're doing, we'd appreciate if you'd tell a friend or share our shows on whatever social media you might happen to frequent. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Mm -hmm.